Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, let's dive into the Word today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6, continuing this series in the life of David. And we're going to look at a fascinating passage, kind of a famous one that shows up here in the life of David today. And uh, man, let's be honest, sometimes the Bible makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Uh, this is a passage that oftentimes makes us a little bit uncomfortable in some of the stuff that it lays out. In fact, we're going to see David's efforts to bring the Ark of the Covenant home to Jerusalem. And in that, uh, one guy in the effort of doing that is going to be killed by God. Um, and that makes us a little uncomfortable. We're going to see uh, a little bit later that David is going to, to try this a second time. And as he does, and it says he's going to dance with all his might. Um, and he is, his wife is going to get bristled by that a little bit. And uh, so you're going to see this conflict that shows up. But there's some tension in this. But what we're going to see is just how important it was to David to bring the ark to Jerusalem because the ark represented the presence of God. It was the place that they met God. It was the way that they sought God. And so this man after God's own heart longs to experience the presence of God and to see the presence of God in the nation of Israel and in the life of the kingdom. But this is an important text for us to understand as well. Now, there, there's a reality for us that we need to feel, <coughs> excuse me, we need to feel the, the same tension that David feels about the holiness of God, about all that God wants to, to do within this, the, the life of his people. And also about the, the, the tension that we may feel because we live under the same conditions of a holy God whom we seek. And we're not to enter into his presence casually. We're not to enter into his worship flippantly. Uh, but to really understand kind of the Christian life and what it is that we're called to be. And there's this paradox that we need to understand that's an important thing that we see in this text. That to enter into the presence of a holy God can be both a terrible danger and an incredible joy. And those two things happen simultaneously for the Christian. And unless you're a Christian, you, you really won't understand all that that has, uh, all that that means. But we hold these two things in tension as we enter the presence of God. And this is, a, I think, a good text for us to look at in this day. Because so often we come in to church and we, we, we like the lights and we like the sounds and we like the thing that's going on, but sometimes it can cause us to enter into things maybe a little too casually. And I think this text is going to push us in some ways that, that may create some tension and make us a little uncomfortable. But you know what? They also made David a little uncomfortable back in his day. So let's get into this and see what we can learn from this strange combination and what we can learn from David's life with God. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Let me just say real quick, that number seems really extreme. Sometimes you'll see that in your Bible. It probably was not 30,000 men that all went. It was probably the leaders of those people that were representative of them, but it's still going to be hundreds of people. This is a huge group that's going to go forward in this entourage with David. It says, the, uh, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up the ark, uh, bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. 
And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they had come to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and, the God, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had, sp- had broken out against Uzzah, and the place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So fascinating text that we look at here as we see what the Lord is doing in the middle of this circumstance. But the first question you ought to ask if you are coming to this text and you look at it is, why was the ark of the covenant just sitting out in the middle of nowhere to begin with? Why was there David had become king but you see, Saul, the previous king, had, uh, in his reign, had really left his imprint all over the land. And Saul had walked away from the Lord. He had distanced himself from the Lord. And in doing that, um, David really, uh, in his neglection, uh, or neglecting the things of God, David was now trying to set some things right. He was going back and saying, man, we need to restore the true worship of God to the, to the people of Israel. And now that, that David is reigning, and he's taken over Jerusalem, and he's set up his house there in Jerusalem, it says that he built a tent or a tabernacle there to house the Ark of the Covenant. And now it was time for him to go get the Ark of the Covenant and to bring it home. Now, uh, it's a, this, this Ark of the Covenant thing is, is an important piece of furniture. And if you grew up in the 80s, uh, you know what it was, you know how important this thing was because you saw the movie or if your parents love you enough, you've seen the movie uh, if you're younger. But it, it's a, there, there was a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark and there was an Ark of the Covenant and there was a little bit of this terror that, reigned even in that movie. And so you see, you kind of got a glimpse of what this text was talking about that I think was probably grounded here. But what it really, let's talk about the ark. The ark, uh, what, kind of what's the importance of the significance of the ark? The ark was a symbol of the presence of God who was over all the earth. It was something that was meant to be a place where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the light of God would descend upon it and he would meet with his people there. And so it was this kind of holy piece of furniture that God would come and descend upon. And it really, it symbolized that God had devoted himself to the people of Israel as his special people. These are his chosen people. These are the ones that he had committed himself to and he was going to be their God. Now, the Philistines in a battle with the Israelites had stolen the ark and taken it home. But as they set it up in their temple, uh, God thought he'd have some fun with that. And so uh, he actually tumbled down the idols that were in the temple with him. And so the, the statue of Dagon falls and, kind of bows at the feet of the ark. Uh, and so there's kind of this comical scene that, that takes place in 1 Samuel. And so the Philistines go, well, we don't want any more to do with this thing. So they take the ark, kind of drive it across the border in Israel and just leave it. And so it's set there to this day because Saul never went and got it. Saul's heart was not for the Lord. He didn't care about meeting with the Lord. So he just left it there and it's set there all this time. And David's heart now that he's got Jerusalem says, man, I want to restore the presence of God into the midst of my people. So he sends out this entourage and they're gonna go get the ark and they're gonna come and bring it home. 
So let me just give you a little bit more information about the ark. It was rectangular in shape. It was made of wood. It was gold-plated inside and out. It had a decorative gold rim around the outside uh, that kind of created this border around it. And then uh, there was a special place over the top of it that was called the mercy seat. And there was kind of a gold grid that was see-through that was placed down as a cover upon the ark. And that mercy seat, I mean, you, you could see through it on either end of that mercy seat. Looking inward were two angels called cherubim. And they were solid gold angels that looked inward and their wings stretched out over the ark. And so as those two uh, angels were sitting there, that kind of, uh, they faced each other and outstretched their arms over the cover. But down inside the cover, under the cover, inside the, that box, there were three things that, that resided there permanently within the ark. One was a gold jar of manna. Uh, back in Exodus, when, when Moses led God's people out of Egypt, and then they wandered in the wilderness, and God would rain down manna to feed them uh, and, and just on a, on a daily basis. Well, they had kept some of that manna. I don't, I don't know if it molded. I don't know if it just was preserved supernaturally. or I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but they'd taken some of the manna, put it in a gold jar, and put it there in the ark. Then in addition to that, there was also Aaron, uh, the, the, uh, back from that same time in Exodus, Aaron's rod that was there it was been, had been placed in the ark, and so it, it existed there. And then also the stone tablets that Moses brought, down, brought back down from the mountain uh, that had the covenant commandments and commitments of the law were placed there in the ark. And so you've got this kind of amazing kind of piece of furniture that's there, but it's got these incredibly important things that all represent God's rule over the world and God's relationship to Israel. And so what was said was that God's, God actually calls the Ark of the Covenant his footstool. Meaning, man, that, that nice piece of furniture, and that's just what I put my feet up on because I'm so big and majestic and glorious that I reign up into the heavens and I rule over all things. And this is just where I descend and rest my feet um, as I sit on my throne overlooking all. And so it represents God's rule over all things, but it also represents God's, uh, God's relationship to Israel. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, which is their most holy day when they would make atonement for their sins and they would, they, they would give sacrifices for the sins, the high priest would splatter blood across the top of that mercy seat and on the front of the, of the Ark of the Covenant because it symbolized that it was only through the blood of sacrifice that we can enter into the presence of God. And so if this is the place where God descends and, and we meet with the Lord here, it's only through sacrifice that we as unholy creatures can enter the presence of a holy God and meet with him there. So you see how, how important the Ark of the Covenant was to the people of Israel? Now, what does it tell you that this had been neglected? And so if that was what was commanded, that they were to enter into the presence of God through the blood of a dead animal that had been sacrificed for them to pay and atone for their sins, and they had neglected it and not done it for a number of years, that tells you something about the spiritual life of the people of Israel, right? They had drifted and they had wandered. And so what you see here is that David's heart was to restore true worship of the Lord to Israel. Now, there's one other really important piece of information you need to understand about how the ark was constructed. At the on each of the bottom four corners, there was a fixed gold ring that was there upon that uh, upon the corners of the ark, and through that there was a there were gold or there were uh, wooden poles that were inlaid with gold that were to be inserted through those rings, and that was how it was to be carried. And only the Levites, the priests. Uh, they were descended from the, of the Levitical order were the ones that were allowed to hoist that upon those poles and carry the ark, right? So you understand the picture here? 
David's gone out. He wants to restore true worship to Israel. He's got the ark. He's got all these people. They're, uh, they're, there's a huge parade. And in this entourage, they've got all these instruments. There's loud uh, music being played. The shofar is being blown. They're singing and dancing. David's got the old songs and the old dances and everything's kind of being restored. And they're coming home and there's this big show of what happens. And here David is, just, is, is passionate about this because he just believes it's not, it's not good enough for God's presence to be a side issue in the life of his people. But God's presence, seeking God's face, needs to be primary. It needs to be the thing they're most fixated on. So David's right in his desires and his motivations, right? What we're going to see is there's also, there's also some place where David's wrong. In verse 3, we see where David's wrong. Um, it says, it begins this way. And they carried the ark on a new cart, which it brought in, which, uh, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And it was Uzzah and Ahiah, the sons of Abinadab, who were driving the new cart. So here's a question for you. Uh, how, who was supposed to carry the ark? The Levites. That's strike one, right? Uh, how was the, the ark supposed to be transported? Carried on poles. Um, they've got this thing on, on a new car, on a cart, Right? They're rolling it on an ox cart. That's strike two. Now, it was nice they built a new cart though, right? I mean, like they've got a new Toyota. They're not bringing in like an old Oldsmobile. I mean, they at least went out and got a new lease on a nice, nice ox cart and, uh, and put, the, put the ark on top of that, uh, that, uh, that cart and began to roll it in. Um, but that isn't really good enough. So that's strike two. What's strike three? Strike three is that Uzzah does the most natural thing possible. So as they're rolling this thing on this cart on uneven ground, they didn't have well-paved roads like we do. They hit a pothole. And as they did, the ox cart did one of these and the ark starts to, starts to tip and uh, Uzzah does what seems really natural, right? Reaches out and grabs it, makes sure it doesn't fall. I mean, because he didn't want this thing to get dirty and get on the ground. I mean, it's a nice piece of furniture, right? I mean, who wouldn't do that? He, he didn't want it to, to fall all the way off the cart and shatter into pieces. And so he reaches out and does what seems really natural, but that's strike three because they were commanded never to touch the ark. And so, um, while it seems reasonable to us that he reached out and grabbed the ark, it wasn't reasonable to the Lord. In fact, it says the Lord broke out against Uzzah, and Uzzah died. That phrase, broke out, is actually from, uh, in the last chapter, what we looked at last week in 2 Samuel 5, when the Lord broke out against the Philistines and gave the Israelites a war, uh, a victory in war over the Philistines. It said that God broke out against the enemies of Israel. Well, here, God broke out. It's the exact same word against his own people because they violated his holiness. As one guy said, I don't care what, your, what worship style you're used to, if a guy falls down dead in worship, the worship service is over, right? I mean, that, that's pretty much an ender when it comes to a worship ceremony and a parade and all this thing. So as this has gone on, you can imagine what that would be like for the people of Israel. I mean, this celebration, all the guys are like banging cymbals and all of a sudden there's kind of everyone going like, whoa, shh. And it just quiets. And everyone gathers around and you watch and you look and you see what's happened here amongst the people. Now, David had the right idea and his intentions were good, but his plans were bad. The way he went about this was wrong because he had neglected the words of God. Now, if you go back and you look at earlier portions of your Bible, God's kindness in warning them about this was crystal clear. 
God had told them exactly what to do. They were told how to build it. They were told exactly how to carry it. They were told not to touch it. In fact, even the kings that when they were installed had to commit to reading the law of God every year so that they would not miss things like this. And so David should have read about this. He should have known about this. He should have led in this way, but he neglected it. And in this, um, he's now suffering the consequences of this. Friends, here's the thing for us, I think, that we have to acknowledge, that if we don't pay attention to God and his word, it doesn't matter how hard you work in your flesh to try to please him. See, it doesn't matter how much emotion you can stir up and you can drum up and how much emotion and feelings you can bring into a setting if you ignore the simple, clear commands of God and disobey. Because it's not about how much emotions, worship is not about how much emotion we can muster. It's also not about having your theology so dialed in that you say all the right things and sing all the right songs and do all those things if your heart is far from God and you're not, and you're not entering into his presence and treating him as someone who's holy. See, David had failed to respect the mandates of God and he was now experiencing the consequences because he didn't, expect, didn't respect God's holiness. Now think about this just kind of from a PR perspective. Like if you're a new king in town and this is your first big move, like, man, we're going to go bring the ark home. We're going we're gonna to celebrate. We're going to have this moment, this giant entourage and this big celebration. And uh, now the whole nation knows that because of the way you did it, you got one of your leaders killed and, uh, and the ark doesn't make it home. Uh, that's, that's not a good PR move. Like, that's not going to be good for, uh, for his reputation. His, uh, his polls on CNN are going to go down for sure after this move. You know, people are going to question his authority and his, his ability to lead. But you also get a unique glimpse here into David's struggle. Look at verses eight and nine. It says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And do you feel the tension that David's feeling there? Because David was trying to do things so right and things went so wrong. Do you ever find yourself in that kind of place? We just want to argue with the Lord and go, Lord, I'm trying so hard and it doesn't seem like we can get the right result. I'm doing everything I know how to do, but I'm not seeing the, the fruit and the progress and the growth and the things that I want to see in my life. I'm, I'm not seeing the, uh, the circumstances of my life go in the right direction. And I am just a little bit beside myself. See, David here is feeling all those things. Um, it's interesting to me, I, I feel like this, this ought to put to death the kind of modern notion that we're the only ones that feel this way. So I think there's some arrogance in our, in our culture sometimes that we think, well, we've progressed beyond this. I mean, people in that day were kind of dumb. They were uneducated. They, they probably didn't understand all the things we, had, we understand. And so they accepted God's kind of mandates and some of these things just naturally. But I mean, we're, we're a lot wiser than that, right? I mean, we're a lot smarter than those guys were. And so we wouldn't feel the same way that they feel. But it's, this kind of cuts at that, doesn't it? Because what you see here is David goes, man, I'm angry with God's holiness. I don't like the way this thing went down. I'm not okay with this. And this modern notion that sometimes we come at things and just say, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna worship God in my own way. I'm gonna do what's meaningful to me. I'm gonna approach God however I wanna approach. And this text says, no, you won't. You, you, you may try it, but you'll do it at the risk of your own peril. I think some of, so often in our day, we say things like, I'm spiritual, but I don't really like church. And God says, well, that's not really an option because there's commandments about that. 
We say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual and, and, I, and I'm connecting to God, but that has no bearing on my sexuality. And yet the scriptures, I think, give us commands about that. We come to it and say, I, I want to be spiritual, but I, I want to kind of accept all religions, that all, all, road leads, all roads lead to heaven. And yet we say things in the scripture like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. So we, we don't get to worship however we want to. We get to worship because God allows us to, because God invites us to. And God tells us how, that it is we're to approach him. And in that, there's a very important thing, I think, for us to acknowledge that God is holy. And so as we enter into his presence, and we're entering in, uh, enter, entering into the, the presence of a holy God, which means we've got to come to him on his terms. We don't get to dictate the terms by which we operate. And I think that's helpful for us to see. Um, here what we see with David is, it's fascinating to me that David, David's angry as well, and David's fearful as well. And he, he almost has a sense of despair, like, who can ever enter the presence of a holy God if this is, this is what can happen? Friends, I think it's, it's good for us to know that even the heroes of the Bible sometimes struggle. Um, so you're not the first people that have ever struggled. You're not the first people that have ever doubted. You're not the first people that got frustrated with the Lord and your circumstances and the way life was going, and you walked away from the Lord for a season. David himself did that. In fact, in this, uh, David had one of those moments here, but it's not the end of the story. Look with me at verse 11 and 12. It says, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And don't you love that? God, David gets frustrated. He's angry. He goes, how can I ever get the ark back? He's like, well, let's just drop it off at this dude's house. Like, whoever's the closest house uh, near where they were when Uzzah died, David's like, well, just roll it up and put it in that dude's house because I'm not taking it back. Now, if you're that guy, like, what do you tell your kids? Like, hey, stay away from that thing. Like, the last guy that touched it didn't go well. Uh, you know, like, there, there's probably some fine print warning on the bottom of that. It's like, you know, touch at your own risk, something like that. There's Surgeon General's warnings that need to be placed there. But you get to verse 11. So they left it at this guy's house, but here's what happened. It says, um, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the Ark of the God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And don't you love that? David had kind of given it up, gone home, and um, kind of just left it. It's like, we'll just leave it there. And he keeps hearing these reports like, dude, the stock market's going up in anything that guy invests in. Like everything's going well for Obed-Edom. His, you know, his crops are flourishing. Everything's going well. Um, and David, it, it's, it's like God wooing David back. And he's saying, you know, the presence of God can be a terrible danger. The presence of God can also be an incredible blessing. And so th that ark in his presence is doing nothing but blessing this home and this man who lives there. And so David decides that he wants to, uh, th that he wants to go and get it again. Isn't that the way the Lord works? So often the Lord will draw a line with our sin and said, no, you've crossed, you've transgressed, you've gone too far. But then he immediately woos us and invites us back in. So he draws a hard line and then invites us to come home invites us to come back into his presence. There's an important phrase at the end of verse 12. It says, David came with gladness. Remember where we just saw, what, what was David feeling in a few verses earlier? He was anger and sadness. He was afraid and fear, right? He was feeling anger and fear. And here he's back to gladness. Now remember that, um, you know, not, there, there's no longer the anger anymore. You, people are shouting, the ram's horn's blasting, David's dancing again. So verses 13 to 15, let's look at the, kind of where the scene goes from there when they go get the ark and begin to bring it home. 
It says, and when, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That's the priest's clothes. So he, he shed his royal garments, the, the robes of the king, the regal stuff. And he put on the, the lowly ephod of a priest and, and really was the undergarment and began to dance before the Lord. Um, it says, uh, and when they had gone, uh, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So here you kind of get, uh, you see that David's approaching things a little differently, doesn't, don't we? Verse 13 says, and those who bore the ark, those who carried the ark, they had learned. They had learned from what happened. <coughs> Excuse me. And as they, as they went, they didn't have it on an ox cart this time. They'd actually done things the right way and they're approaching it. In fact, in a parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 15 says, David instructed the Levitical priests that they were the only ones allowed to carry the ark this time. He said this in verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, but we did not, because we did not seek him according to the rule. Isn't that a beautiful statement? What we see here is that David, when he went home angry, when he went home afraid, he didn't just stay angry and afraid. He actually went back and got into the book. He got into the word or the law of God and he began to study it and he learned some things and said, oh, this is supposed to only be carried by the Levites. Oh, this is not supposed to be an ox cart. It's supposed to be carried on those poles that we weren't sure what to do with. And oh, this is, there's a whole right way that God told us exactly how to approach him. And David grew spiritually and now he came and because of that, he had confidence. Uh, but don't you know that the Levites were glad when they got that assignment? David came and said, hey, that thing we carry, we're gonna go out and get it, but you guys get to carry it this time. And they're like, the thing that the guy died last time? Uh, you know, I'm sure like, you know, rock, paper, scissors on who got to do that. But honestly, it's an incredible honor for them to get to do. And so they, I think, did approach it differently, but they weren't careless about God's holiness. They approached it with, with a sense of somberness because they understood what it was to enter into the presence of a holy God. And that's why you read, when the bearers of the ark had gone six paces, they stopped and sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Man, isn't that crazy to think about? Like I, I, I actually didn't do the research to figure out how many miles they had to go from Obedidim's house to Jerusalem. But when you think about going six steps, it doesn't take very long, right? I think that's six. I can't count and talk at the same time. But then you stop and they make it a sacrifice. And as they made that sacrifice, it was, it, was, it was a way to say, God is holy and we don't enter carelessly. Lord, would you protect us? And in some ways, when they made that sacrifice, they're, they're thanking God that you, did, you, know, you didn't strike us down in those last six steps. And they're saying, you know, would you take care of us the next six steps? And then they, they, walk, they went ahead another six steps and they stopped and they made another sacrifice. Can you think of how that would impact the whole time the worship is going on around them? And, uh, and you know, it's like, it, it's kind of like a scene out of, uh, out of Mad Max or something, to be honest. When you start thinking about every six steps and animals being killed and things left on the side of the road as they're making this way into Jerusalem. But here's what it represented. And here's what I think is important. Uh, David sacrificed for two reasons. One is God is holy and we don't deserve to be in his presence. So we want to we want to honor him and we want to enter into by the sacrifice and we're asking for God's care and his protection. Israel's worship was centered on this idea of substitution and a sacrifice to pay for their sin. When they left Egypt, 
before that, God instituted the Passover, and they, uh, the, the angel of the Lord was going to come down and, and, and take the firstborn of everyone in that land. And they took blood, and they sprinkled over the doorposts of, of their homes. And every house that was protected with the blood of a sacrifice, the, the angel of the Lord would pass over and save them and protect them. And so that idea is implemented here that there's going to be this blood, this sacrifice, that that's the only way we can enter into the presence of a holy God. Now, friends, for us, that's also a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus. That, that this, this sacrifice that allowed them to enter the presence of a holy God is what we also see in the person of Christ. That he would die the death of a sinner who, was, uh, who should have experienced the holy wrath of God and the punishment of God. Jesus would, would die like a sinner, even though he himself had, deserved, had done no wrong and deserved no punishment at all. Even though he himself were holy, he inserted himself as a substitute and made himself the sacrifice that allowed us to be restored into relationship with the holy God so that God's wrath didn't pour out on us as it did to Uzzah. But not everyone appreciates that salvation message, right? Not everyone loves the gospel. Not everyone understands this remedy for entering into the presence of a holy God through sacrifice. And David did, and it's why he approached God in this kind of a way this time around in this journey. Look at me in verse 16. It says, And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, uh, Michal the daughter of Saul, looked, up, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each. Then all departed, each to his house. So you kind of have the scene of the... Uh, and we're going to come back to, uh, to his wife, Michael, in just a minute. And as we think about kind of her response and, and the way she did, but as she's going to reject and despise David for what he's doing, uh, we see that the nation is responding a different way. Uh, this is a happy day in Israel. For the first time in their, in their history, uh, they are in uh, possession of the city of Jerusalem, which is going to be the center of their worship. God has, uh, David has set up a tent or a tabernacle where everyone's going to come in. The ark has been restored. God's going to meet them there. That's going to be the place where they will seek the presence of the Lord. And since no great celebration took place when David became king in Jerusalem, uh, and so there hadn't been this kind of inauguration day of David's kingdom, David comes in and makes this the day. And what he's saying is, uh, God is our king. And he, he puts on a linen ephod and says, look, I'm just, I'm just one who is here to be a servant of the Lord, but ultimately the Lord is our king. And that's the heart behind the celebration. So you notice that David's got the tabernacle. He's burnt offerings and peace offerings. Part of the benefit of a peace offering was that once the animals were, uh, had been killed, they were free to, those didn't go to the priests or weren't burned completely. Those were free to go to basically throw a barbecue for all your friends. And so this is a giant community party where they took the meat of those sacrifices, celebrated it, and had this giant festive communal meal. You notice David blesses the people. He gives gifts to the people. It says there was a cake of bread, one of dates, and one of raisins. Um, now, raisin cakes were kind of the aphrodisiac of the day. And so David is blessing the people, and he gives them all uh, this, this raisin cakes. And you notice the very next thing it says, it says, then everyone went home. Um, just going to say it. I mean, like, you can probably do the math here. 
But the, when the king sends you home with a raisin cake, there's a purpose behind it. And it really means exactly what, it, what it's supposed to mean is that on a joyous occasion, those who are married should enjoy it and should make merry. And so that's kind of what it's pointing. I'm guessing that nine or 10 months later, there are a whole lot of little kids running around, uh, running around the area in, in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, but David had a very different experience when he got home, right? Look in verse 20. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, and as one who, uh, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So here, what is her specific complaint? I mean, can you feel the, just the sarcasm flying off her tongue? Man, look at you. And stripping yourself in front of all these people. There's no dignity in that. That's embarrassing. Like you're humiliating us. Um, her specific complaint is that he's not following proper decorum, that he's lost his regal manner. She's focused on the external. She's focused on the outside. She's doing what her father Saul always did, which is focus on the, the external appearance of things, but she's absent from the heart of things. And so she's missing the heart of why David's doing what she's doing. And this in verse 16 says she despised him in her heart. Man, that's such an ugly phrase, isn't it? For a wife to feel about a husband. But you notice what it is she, she despised was all the things that made David great. His unbridled devotion to the Lord, his, uh, his willingness to debase himself and worship freely, his desire and hunger to see the presence of God honored. Now, before we're too hard on, on Michael, can we admit that we do this kind of thing sometimes too? I mean, think about this. I was just thinking about this. This fear of rejection keeps us from risking intimacy with God. Our need for control keeps us from freely celebrating the Lord. Our, our shame over our sin keeps us from fully trusting the Lord's love. And the attention of other people keeps us from focusing on the Lord as the audience of our worship. Sometimes our insecurity pushes us to study about God without really seeking the presence of God. So we, we have these tendencies in us as well. We can miss the presence of the Lord. And so before we just throw her under the bus, let's acknowledge that we all struggle with this sometimes. But we won't understand the joy of the Lord when we're fixated on our own appearance and our own performance and our own, our own actions. So part of her, the problem with her dignity or the reason why her dignity was dangerous was it prevented her from throwing herself at God's feet and, and seeking his mercy and seeking his face because she was more concerned with self. Uh, Chuck Sundahl wrote about this. He says, the better you know where to stand, where you stand with God, the freer you can be. See, David understood his standing before the Lord had to be entered into through a sacrifice of another. And he understood the holiness of God and what it was. And so he says, the better you know where you stand with the Lord, the freer you can be. There is no freedom like the kind he provides. In a word, it's grace. See, friends, grace is what allows an unholy people to enter the presence of a holy God. Grace is what it's like when we experience kindness from a, a holy God who also bears justice. Grace is what 
we experience when we have blessing rather than punishment. Grace is what we experience when we know the love of God instead of the wrath of God. It's all grace. It's grace that allows us to enter into him. So when you think about worship, worship is not the emotions that we drum up. Worship is not simply the words that we repeat and say all the right things. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. See, worship is this, we, we see God for who he really is, and we see what God has really done for us, and we respond to him. And worship's not just singing, worship's all of life, and it affects all of life, but it certainly should show up in our singing, which is what you see in David. It's why he was motivated and why he was so free in his worship. He had seen God's holiness and knew what it could do, but he'd also seen God's blessing and knew what it could do. And so he, he entered into it with a sense of, of reverence, but also a sense of great joy. And he ran hard after the Lord. And only Christians can really understand what's meant by this kind of grace. It's this paradox of holiness, of the holiness of God and the love of God experienced together in, as one in the presence of God. Spurgeon said this about David in this moment. He says, The Lord who searches the heart knew what David meant by his dress, by his playing upon his heart, by his leaping and dancing in the midst of the people. It was before the Lord. See, David said, I'm, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this before the Lord. He's my audience. It was before the Lord that he showed his excessive joy. And if others happened to be there as spectators, he didn't repel them, but he also did not restrain himself. If the Lord accepted him and his offerings and his praises, he would have all that he wanted, whether the multitude of the princes of Israel accepted him or not. See, if he had, if he had the acceptance of God and the love of God, he had everything he needed. And so that was where he found freedom. Friends, this is what it looks like to live a life of worship with God as our audience. And that's really where our freedom comes from. So let me end with this. And what do we do with this, with this passage? David, we know, is a man after God's own heart. Part of what that means is that he cared about what God cared about. He cared about the things God, um, God taught him about. And so it doesn't mean that he was perfect, but it meant that he was seeking the Lord and he was sensitive to the Lord's direction. He was sensitive to the Lord's correction. Uh, what we see in David is that David, even though he blew it the first time, and he adjusted, he corrected, he re refined what he was doing and learned to live in a way that honored the Lord. And to be a man after God's own heart means that you desire the Lord, that you seek him personally, that you want his blessing and you're willing to, uh, to adjust your plans in order to please him. That, that whenever you hear something that the Lord declares to you from scripture, you immediately think, and how do I get more of that into my life? How do I get more of what God wants into, into my living? How, how does my worship more accurately reflect who God is and what he's done for me so that I can have more of his presence and I can have more joy and more freedom in him? Father, I pray that right now, Father, would you just cause uh, all the distractions to fade away? Father, would you allow us to do business? Would you highlight things in our heart that we need to confess to you? Would you draw our attention to you? Would you be our audience? Father, would our eyes and our heart be fixed upon you, even now that we might know you're holy and you're, lo you're loving. And in that combination, Father, we experience your grace and we respond in worship. Amen. Amen.